We live in a very diverse nation in the United States, and our college campuses can be equally, sometimes even more diverse than the city or neighborhood we grew up in. Diversity may be on campus, but that doesn't mean every voice is heard at the table. Voices from the Margins is a podcast designed to elevate the voices of women and students of color from college campuses around the United States. Together, we hope to raise awareness on unknown issues, invite people to action, and advocate for the unheard. Join us on Voices from the Margins. Uh, how do you stay there? How do you how do you keep engaging in things and not lose your mind? How do you keep engaging with things and not give into despair? Uh, not become bitter and angry. And um, yeah, what do you think? Oh, the bitter and angriness. Yes. (laughs) I had my very angry at Asian American stage in college. And then there's a stage where I was really angry at white people. They were, they were non overlapping. Mm. (laughs) Um, I think it's very tough. Um, It's especially if you come from a, um, if you come from a marginalized group, I think that um, it's not that people who live at the margins are more likely to become hateful or angry or um, self-protective or anxious or upset. It's I think that um, when you experience suffering, it just leaves you more open to those things. Mm. Um, and those are things that make it tough kind of be in this place where you are keeping your eyes open, um, trying to see what's coming at you, um, trying not to let the uh, this kind of filter of how the world should be and how you should be experiencing it come over your eyes. And I think being part of um, communities that help you do that is really, really important. Um, so in the wake of this election, I know there's been a lot of criticism about echo chambers on social media. And um, I think that there are some really valid things being said there about the need to have different people in your lives. And at the same time, I think social media has just been a really significant place for people to connect with um, groups um, that share similar values, that are looking for the same things that are happening in society. Um, I know that um, while I was during the election, you know, I was wrestling with a lot of the really hateful things that were being said online. Um, and I know that it was through Facebook and um, I was kind of on Twitter, but mostly through Facebook that I, I felt I was able to connect with uh, people who were experiencing similar dissonance, displacement with, um, with their idea of America versus other people's ideas of America. And um, I don't know, we were able to just kind of talk about what that meant. Um, how you deal with that, how you move forward, how you interpret what's going on in front of you. Mm. So, so for me, I, I think there have been times in my life when being part of a community that is similar to me um, has been really important for staying awake. Uh, and at other times, being a part of communities where people have different perspectives have been really significant for me in forming my perspective of the world. Um, and honestly, uh, I think especially if you are part of a marginalized group, um, it's important to say, important to affirm that it is okay 
to be part of a community where people just look like you and just talk about like the way that you do because outside like out there um every day when you're going to work when you're going to classes it's a different world you know mm -hmm. um and so that language that i know a lot of people throw around about needing to always be around people that are different um and not i guess not being your own like real world so like echo chamber mm -hmm. i don't know if that always applies yeah. for marginalized groups so those are those are the things that come to mind um have there been particular practices or things like uh lifestyle patterns that have been helpful for you sean uh, that's a good question i think um in terms of getting there and staying there I, I completely agree number one about having i think people that you can process with together and have some safe spaces uh, i think Sometimes the burden on people of color is to always uh, have to educate the dominant culture when something takes place. Like I know when there was a, just a high frequency of unarmed shootings uh, that were happening, <coughs> myself and a number of my friends, we got a litany, I think, of text messages and phone messages. And some of them for, were from some of our white brothers and sisters who were already awoke, uh, awakened rather to the reality of some of these things. And they were just sending prayers of encouragement. But then there was a, another set, I think, of, of white people who, just had a lot of questions and were confused at the backlash and the pain and the frustration. And I think a lot of times what happens with people of color is that we have to pause our mourning and our grief to be able to, to be educators. Um, and so I think for people of color, you've got to be able to have those safe spaces. You've got to be around, I think, people where you don't have to translate uh, and you don't have mm -hmm. to feel the need to educate uh, all the time. So uh, healthy boundaries <laughs> is monumental. Sometimes you have to unplug from social media. Sometimes you have to not translate or to not teach or to not coach. I think that's, that's always very important. I think the second one is um, there is this, this holy discontent that I think that we have to be able to have. Dr. King called it a uh, remaining maladjusted. Uh, this idea that there are some things that we need to not accept as normal. Um, and I think it's having that perspective. It's saying that, you know, there are ways in which I have to submit to decisions that have been made or I have to submit to the laws of the land. But at the same time, too, if we're Christians, then we know that we, we have a different definition of justice. We have a different definition of what righteousness looks like. And that's what we're pursuing. And so I don't have to accept, I think, what society deems as acceptable. Um, and so how do you navigate that? Uh, I think those are, there are no easy answers there. Uh, again, I think as believers, though, our hope is ultimately in the gospel. And I think we trust that God is always at work uh, and that if the gospel is true, if it really does mean that the kingdom of God has come and that Jesus is reconciling all things back to God right now, then that means that ultimately the end of the story is that these things will be made new. And that means that God is at work, whether we can sense him or trace him. And um, one of my mentors, uh, Tony Warner, who's on staff with InterVarsity, he said, Sean, uh, American Christians, he said, Some, too often we get it wrong. We're always in a hurry to fix everything. <clears throat> he said, Israel waited 400 years for Moses. And I know it's a long time. So, uh, but this is idea of, you know, there's always hope, whether it happens in our lifetime or not. Uh, there's always hope. Change will always come. Uh, I think about my ancestors who were slaves. They were enslaved for 400 years. I mean, a long time um, around the world. And 250 years, give or take, here in the United States. And there were generations who were born and died in slavery, but we are free. Uh, and so, and I don't, I don't know how to apply that to my own life. I think that's an eternal hope. That's a, that's a sage old wisdom hope. 
I'm 34, so I'm like, you know, I want change and I want it now. So I don't know, I don't know how to live into that that says it's, it's coming, whether it comes in my lifetime or not, it will. So there are ways in which I think we have to be maladjusted. There are ways in which we have to recognize there are some things that we have earned the right to be angry about and not just that we're angry all the time. Uh, there are some things that have, we've earned the right to be angry. But how do we have our hope in the gospel? And then how do we do our part? I think so that the world is a better place than the way in which it was when we got here. So. Oh, and find a mentor. Find somebody older than you. That's probably <laughs> the only thing I would say, too. Uh, Dr. Cleo <laughs> mine. I quote him on a number of our podcasts. Um, he is a, he's just, his words are water on my immortal soul. And there's something powerful about, I think, reading the words of someone who went through similar experiences 50 or 60 years ago. And a lot of his books, he gives uh, warnings or he gives charges in terms of like, if we do this in the next generation, we'll have brighter futures. If we don't, we'll have darker tomorrows. And so it was interesting to go back and listen to his words some 50 or 60 years later to see, did we actually listen? Did we apply what he said? And for the places in which we did, how much brighter is the world? And for the places in which we didn't, uh, how much darker is it? And where's history repeating itself? So having someone older than you to give a perspective it it changes the game unlike anything else. So. That's good. That's really good. I'm thinking about how I see or have seen in the university a lot of very enthusiastic, hopeful, um, primarily Asian Americans who are very, who want to see change happen that just really burned out after a while, mm-hmm. you know? And so when I think about that question, what does it mean to stay woke? Um, I think that that's a real challenge, especially if you have this finely tuned sense of what is not wrong in the world. Um, Not burning out from the work of it and the tiredness of always having to educate people um, from that sense of anger, from the hurt. Um, I haven't quite figured out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know that um, the person, I know looking at the, the activism of Jesus has been very comforting to a lot of um, college students who are Christians or not Christians and um, who have that burning vision in yeah. their hearts of seeing, um, yeah, seeing people who are suffering yeah. um, find that break, you know? And I think that for me, in periods when I've really wrestled with um, whether I should just forget about this whole, forget about all of this, forget mm-hmm. about all the dissonance, forget about what you mentioned, that sense of um, imbalance that I know that I can find, but can also slip away from me as I kind of slip into this idea of like, that the world is okay and that I'm going to be treated all right, um, has been, has been to reflect, I think, on, um, and the compassion of Jesus towards the marginalized. Yeah. And for me, I think that has been really key for helping me to shape my prayer life. Um, how do I pray in anger? How do I pray in si- si- um, silence? How do I pray in soundness? How do I pray when um, I don't want to think about um, things like race and gender and um, poverty and injustice and um, all the work of translation that needs to be done. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you know, boundaries are just, 
I agree with you. Like I haven't learned it at all. I think probably with the invention or the realization that black Twitter is a thing, that there are groves <laughs> of black people that have found each other on Twitter and they create the greatest <laughs> hashtags and memes. Uh, you do. It like, is like a, it is like a cultural gift. Like in real time, yes. I'm like, how is this possible? <laughs> like, who, we need to hire these people. They need jobs. <laughs> so, my goodness, you need to do this full time. So, I think just the reality of Black Twitter, I think, probably coming out and it occurring because of the frequency of unarmed shootings that took place. You just had these college students, you had these Black people, or people who were not Black but could recognize the pain and the turmoil that was going on in that ethnic group come together and have a giant conversation on Twitter, um, on social media. I'm just reminded more and more healthy boundaries are crucial. Like we, you know, I love superheroes. I have a, I won't say I have a Messiah complex. I do have a superhero complex. I do want to rescue everyone and save everyone. And we just can't do it. And so I think <laughs> one of the, the blessing of, of all of this is it teaches you your limits. Uh, and you have to know what you can say yes to and what you have to say no to. Uh, you have to know when you can engage and when you can't. You have to know when you need to be writing something on social media, when you take a break. Um, and there are times in which, you know, you can have a cross-cultural conversation, as we talked about before, to help raise awareness for issues because someone is not woke and they don't get it. And there are times in which you're like, you know what, I really don't have it in me right now. There are times in which we've got to be able to invite people to action. And there are times in which, uh, you know, um, after you've been saying the same thing over and over and over again, it's that old proverb that says, waste not fresh tears on old sorrow. And so how do you say, you know, I'm not, I don't want to repeat myself. Uh, how about we go back and take a look at the last thing that my parents or my grandparents or someone else from a previous generation said in terms of action steps. And so you just have, you have to, I think self-awareness is huge. Um, and I think with, I think our hope is that 2017 will be different because 14 and 15 and 16 were just, I used to like professional wrestling. They were slobber knockers. You know, they were just painful. So <laughs> they were just very, very, very brutal. They were very brutal. And so uh, I think we want to hope that 2017 is different. But, you know, time, time, history demonstrates that these things don't change over time. They take direct action. And so uh, in the midst of that, we've got to have some healthy boundaries uh, for ourselves. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I think prayer, I think meditation is huge. I practice Tai Chi, so which is great. I'm an orange sash. I become green. Next month, I'm very excited. You got to have hobbies. You got to have friends and yes. uh, things that are life-giving to you. And if you don't have a list of those things, uh, start to experiment. I know what gives you joy and what, what fills your tank and pursue those with reckless abandon. So That's good. Thanks for sharing more about um, healthy boundaries. I was going to ask you a question to <laughs> clarify that. <laughs> I have learned by failing. So, I have this love-hate relationship with the term intersectionality. Um, Say more. That <laughs> That's a history in African American studies bachelor saying, what the heck is intersectionality? So I'm trying to remember what it means. So that was okay. that. <laughs> Um, so intersectionality is this idea that uh, we aren't just one type of group, um, but that a person can fall into multiple categories. Mm -hmm. And so the experiences of privilege, <clears throat> which is a hot word in um, many university circles, um, privilege can be experienced really differently. Yeah. So um, you might be, so I am an Asian American, 
but I'm also an East Asian that came from the first wave of immigration that turns to be wealthier than this, the wave that came after that. It's not the first wave, I think it's actually the second. Um, and I'm also a female, um, which means something different in Asian communities versus in white communities, um, and come from a middle to upper class family, right? And so my experiences will be very different than, say, the Asian American out there in the library. <laughs> I'm recording in a library right now, guys. Um, in a sound that was not meant to be a stereotype. That is a geographic reality. <laughs> that is a geographic reality. And it's the medical, it's the med center library too, which makes it even worse. But I, which <laughs> is stereotypes. But I think they have this here so um, they can record record themselves or I, I I don't know what's going on I don't know why this is in this library so, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so intersectionality is the idea that we want to look at those um, ways in which privilege is tiered and acknowledge those differences in experiences um, and so as I've kind of looked at different facets of my identity and how those um, intersect with different conversations like the conversation around gender the conversation on gender and my ethnic community versus in America, um, <clears throat> conversations around like sexual orientation, since I am very heterosexual, um, like what does privilege look like there? I've noticed that it's, it's just been really challenging for me um, because I like the narrative. I like my old narratives and I don't like new ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I know that as an Asian American, um, the question of privilege is complicated, you know, yep. because we have been really privileged in some ways, far more than a lot. Well, as an East Asian, let's not say Asian American, as an East Asian, um, been far more privileged than um, a lot of Black Americans, definitely Native Americans, you know. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a discomfort there of how do I claim wrong in a world where I really am not that wrong. Mm. And so I think that, and so in the intersectionality conversation, I just wonder if that's something that other people of color, other marginalized groups experience, um, the sense in which suddenly it's not that I'm not white, it's that I need to place myself within um, these different like dimensions of marginalization. Say more about the not wrong, but have to claim wrong. <laughs> Sorry, can you say that again? Say Talk. more about the, uh, that's okay. Say more about the, uh, about the not being wrong, but having to claim wrong. Um, I've been in a number of conversations uh, with uh, multi-ethnic group conversations where we're attempting to come to an understanding about race. And um, almost always, if I'm with a group of Asian Americans, no one says anything um, for the first 45 minutes. Um, and I think that, I think part of that is um, our communities don't often talk about these things and so we don't know how to talk about them. And part of that is because um, we're deferring to the African Americans in the room who have this tremendous history of suffering in the United States um, that goes on centuries in some ways. <laughs> Just what some of our families have, you know. Um, 
And so I think by the end of the conversation, there's this, there's this kind of feeling like, is, do I really have anything to say in the face of that? You know, um, how do I talk about, I guess it happens on an, a global stage too. Like how as an American do I talk about poverty when global poverty is at a, a level that, at least where we define our income levels, American poverty is it, yeah. right? And I think there's a this interpersonal dynamic there that I sort of wrestle with a little bit. Yeah, it's it's uh, that's a good question. It's a great perspective to be able to have. I, you know, I think a couple of thoughts come to my mind. One, um, you know, that's the dangers of privilege, right? It's it's not just uh, we've experienced all of these good things and material and economic prosperity, or however you define privilege, having power when you walk into a room, it's also the reality that, well, what's the end result of this conversation? If the, if the problem is that I've experienced privilege <laughs> and that legitimate reconciliation will require me giving up some of that privilege and giving up to some of that power, then it is, I am going to lose something. Uh, and mm -hmm. that, that's a reality. I also think that's why we have not made as much progress. Uh, power concedes nothing without demand. It never has and it never will. And so uh, I think, you know, for myself as an African-American man living in the United States, in terms of the narrative and how history is told, I don't have a lot of power. I think in terms of um, how decisions are made or how, uh, yeah, actually how decisions are made, how my, my ethnic group is viewed in mainstream media, we don't have a lot of power, in my opinion. I think if you look at the entertainment field in terms of actors, actresses, and athletes, uh, and musicians, uh, we've got tons of power. We've got influence for days. Uh, but then the question becomes like, well, actual the business owners, like how many African-American sports teams owners are there? There's Magic Johnson <laughs> in baseball. The team is not that good. God bless them. I'm sorry. But, you know, they're just, um, they're very few. And so economic power, again, there's a limit. The higher up you go in the United States, I think the wider things become. So I think that's part of it. But Privilege also means, too, not just a matter of how do I give up my power and my privilege so that other people can also experience some of the things that I have. But that, that is a part of it. It's like if, if I do have privilege, if I do have power, how do I share that? Like it can't be, oh, look at all the wonderful things that I have and you don't have that. That sucks. Let me take you and buy you a meal and listen to it. It's like, well, no. How do we level the playing field so that you at least have the same opportunities that I have? Um, and I think that's that's what it means, I think, to be in privilege. So for myself, one privilege that I think African-Americans have is that even though as a black man in America, our narrative is controlled and too often we are told what to think and what to say and we are muted if it does not agree with the dominant culture's narrative for things. I do know that when social justice stuff pops off, the loudest voice in the room, and by that I think the one that gets everybody's attention, everyone's attention is the black voice. Asian Americans can say as much as they want to in terms of social injustice. Native Americans can say as much as they want to in terms of social injustice. Latinos can say as much as they want to in terms of social injustice. If black people get up and start yelling for some strange reason, <laughs> the media shows up, uh, the commercial break has ended, uh, it is uncanny. There is a megaphone in front of us. And some of that is spiritual. I do think it's the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. And there are ways in which the United States of America recognizes that it still has not repaired the damage 
uh, that it is that it inflicted on African Americans, which built this country. And so, That's from good. a spiritual and from a, a secular perspective, when <clears throat> this wounded community stands up and says something, everyone listens. So whether or not they agree with it or not, they do listen. And I think for us as African Americans, that is a small privilege that we have. And so when that megaphone is in front of us, I think our due diligence is to be able to say, yes, we care about these particular issues that are affecting the black community, but we are not by ourselves. Immigration is not just um, a political issue or a social issue. It's a spiritual issue. So how do we care for the orphan and the widow and the immigrant? So we want to create space to hear from our Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters. We also want to recognize that there are more illegal Chinese people in the United States than there are uh, Mexicans. And so how do we, how do we create space for that? How do we share the stage? Uh, and that takes humility on our part because we're so often not heard and not listened. We have to be the martyr. So how do we, I think, practice that humility that says, even though we aren't heard when we are, uh, we need to be able to give space for others to be heard as well. And that's, I think that's, that's how you share power. That's how you share privilege. It's not just a recognizing that, man, I have to give up something. It's also saying, how can I bless someone else so that they have the same opportunities that I had? Um, and I think when we do that, I think that's when you truly make some progress. Um, so that's my thought. That's good. But no, it's not easy. So I recognize it as a man. So as much as I'm upset about some of the ways in which black people are treated, at the end of the day, you know, when the conversation is done, there are mostly men in most of the rooms that I'm in. And there are very few women, whether they're women of eth different ethnic groups or the same ones. And so it's weird. The people of color will, well, I mean, different ethnic groups will get together. And then when that's done, all the women have to get together. <laughs> it's just like the boys are all crazy, right? So there are ways in which I think I have privilege that I'm not aware of. And I have to navigate that complexity. And so I yeah. try to have a listening posture. So I don't ever want to be. I don't ever want it said that I was not aware of the privilege, the few privileges that I do have, and that I, I further marginalize people. I would hate if that was the, someone said the conclusion of my life, you know? So mm -hmm. I always want to make sure that I'm not, I'm not marginalizing other folks, that I'm trying to bring the margins into the center, and I'm always listening for the margins to, to see how I can care for them and honor them. So I think when we make a decision that a marginalized group disagrees with, and then we stand up and rationalize and explain and defend our decisions, like, well, just apologize. You'll go a long way. So, right. I think that's one of the things I appreciate about doing this podcast is that um, I think it's triggered some reflective process for me in terms of thinking through. I mean, the point of this podcast isn't that like we're marginalized people, so yeah. listen to us, right? It's yeah. it's that there's this value for people in the margins that should be carried by everyone, including people who are in the margins. And yeah. so, what does that look like? Um, and how does that question, how does question challenge us? How does Jesus's gaze on marginalized people challenge the way that we look at the world? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. The savior of the world was not born in a palace. No. He was born <clears throat> in a manger. And so what does that say about how we view power and its utility and how earthly and human power fits into the kingdom of God? <laughs> That's a Bible study for another time. That's so. a Bible study for another time. Yep. Everybody else, stay tuned, folks. You've got hopefully some interviews that will be coming up. We want to be able to have some interviews with some college students as well as some of our elders and mentors as well, too. This idea of getting woke and staying woke. Uh, we want to hear from college students. And so we'll bring in, bring in some interviews in uh, next week, next time we gather. Then also we've got some men and women who have been ambassadors for uh, college students and for the kingdom of God.
who've been on staff some 30 or 40 years, and they've seen far more than we have, and yet they are still uh, engaging, still praying, and still partnering to see justice come. And so clearly that definition of staying engaged and staying woke is much different from ours. And so we want to hear from them. So stay tuned. Uh, things should get interesting. Voices from the Margins is presented by Ministry in Digital Spaces, a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. For more information on MDS, joining our team, or becoming a ministry partner, log on to digital.intervarsity.org.